turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. Uh, remember the, the second half of the book of Daniel transitions from the, the narratives that we're familiar with in Daniel into a series of visions that Daniel has in the first vision last week in Daniel 7. We, uh, we see in that vision four beasts that rise up out of the sea. And unlike last week's text, the vision of the four beasts this evening, uh, Daniel's going to have another vision. And in this vision, there are two animals, a ram and a goat. Uh, and so these aren't fantastic beasts. They're not strange creatures made up of the different parts of other animals, but an actual ram and a goat that he sees in his vision. Last week, the four creatures, the beasts, are are described generally in terms of world powers, but it's difficult uh, to, to discover precisely what kingdoms in history each one might relate to. Some seem to be easier than others, but even when asked for an interpretation, the angel still doesn't point us towards any particular nations in history. This evening, however, the two animals we're going to be explicitly told represent the Greek empires and the Persian and Mede empire. And so we're, we're not getting just more of the same in this evening's text. Uh, Daniel is actually getting a, a very clear insight into what is going to happen in the roughly 400 years that follow his time. It might be helpful, too, before I read, and we don't have a lot of time to read so long tonight, uh, but it might be helpful nonetheless to remind you of some basic world history. Daniel is living during the Babylonian Empire and into just the first few years of the Medo-Persian Empire that followed that. That Persian Empire rules in the ancient Near East until they're finally destroyed by the Greeks under Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great not only quickly conquers, but suddenly dies. And when he does, four of his generals fight for power and end up dividing the territory that they had conquered into four separate empires. And from one of those empires, eventually, is going to rise a king who has tremendous influence and power, particularly in Palestine. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. And so that's the history that's going to be covered in the vision and we'll see more detail as we get into it. Let me uh, pray for us, and we'll read the text this evening. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal the truth to us about what is happening in the world. We pray that we would come to understand this truth, that we would have eyes to see the reality of what is unfolding around us. Give us wisdom to live in this world until Christ returns or you take us home. Father, we pray that we would be a people who are faithful uh, who trust, who do not despair, and who remember the end that you have ordained. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Daniel 8, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the providence, or province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great." 
As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could escape the ram from, or rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a voice, a man's voice, between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have one point this evening. It's a rather simple point, but an important point, And that is that spiritual warfare is real. We know this, but we need to consider it from the perspective of the text this evening. 
Paul himself tells us, right, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the, the principalities and the, the, the dominions of the world. Now, our warfare is ultimately, truly, a spiritual warfare. Though the vision that we read here in Daniel is about a, a period of history that's past. All of this has taken place. Uh, Persia rose to prominence. Uh, the Greeks eventually, under Alexander, defeated Persia, destroyed the empire Alexander died, and his four kings uh, fought and took the, the various uh, parts of that Greek empire, that Alexandrian empire for themselves. And the Seleucid empire under Antiochus Epiphanes ultimately rises up, and certainly with respect to Palestine, becomes the most important of the four. Antiochus Epiphanes, who elevated himself to deity. Epiphanes means the revealed one, the, or God made manifest is the idea. Uh, of course, he did some crazy things, and even his own people called him Antiochus Epimenes, which sounds like Epiphanes, but it means the mad one, right? So his own people thought he was crazy and completely out of control. Now, all of that's happening on the world stage. Antiochus is a real person. He does real things. The, the terrible things that are described here for the people of God are accomplished by Antiochus in, in fairly significant detail in history. But the reason that Daniel is, is receiving this vision is not simply to describe to him future events in the world, but to put those events in context and through Daniel to us uh, immediately to those in Daniel's time and in the, the immediate centuries after this who had Daniel's prophecy and to us today to come to an understanding of what's really happening in the world. It's not as though there's the, the things that we can see, and then there's a separate, unrelated spiritual reality. The two are tied together. Spiritual warfare is real, and in fact, it is the ultimate reality. We, we struggle with unseen things. We struggle, I think, especially in the West, to think of those things that are spiritual as being real. Paul says in Ephesians, and I often struggle to impress this upon people, he says in Ephesians that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we've been made alive together with Christ. That's not metaphorical language. You were spiritually dead, but that doesn't mean you weren't really dead. We were really, truly, spiritually dead. And we have just as certainly, really, truly been made spiritually alive. As many of us as are in Christ, repenting of our sins, we have already experienced a resurrection. We were dead, and we are now alive in Christ. The spiritual reality that is behind what we see happening in the world is the ultimate reality. But it doesn't mean the things that are happening in the world aren't important. They're, they're inextricably linked to one another. Sometimes I think that the things we can see, the real people, real kingdoms, real powers, the real conflicts, often by their physical reality, obscure the deeper spiritual reality behind them. We are, are constantly having to be reminded that what we see happening is not as it appears. That there's a genuine spiritual reality behind it. Warfare that is unfolding, that even though we can't see it, doesn't mean it's not real. 
God reveals this to Daniel, not only to inform him about Israel's future, but to draw back the curtain on the spiritual reality behind it. This comes to the foreground in the description of Antiochus Epiphanes, who is that, uh, that little horn that comes up out of the four and takes prominence. And it's, it's really Antiochus that, that the vision is focused on. It moves fairly quickly through uh, the Persian Empire and the Greeks coming along under Alexander and being divided into four separate kingdoms. The focus ultimately is on Antiochus, who is described doing terrible things to the people of God. And as I said, in history, he did do terrible things. He is a real person in history who slaughtered many Jews, desecrated the temple. He had a pig sacrificed on the altar, an unclean animal on the altar, and turned the temple in Jerusalem into a place of syncretistic worship, pagan worship mixed with things that appeared to be something like the worship of Yahweh. Look at verse 25 in the text this evening. Speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes, it says, His power shall be great but not by his own power. Look again at verse 25, towards the end of the verse. Again, still speaking of Antiochus, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. It's God who raises Antiochus up. It's God who brings Antiochus down. It's God who not only is able to see into the future and therefore give this vision to Daniel, but God who determined what this future would be. He ordained these things, and this is why he knows they will happen, because he has determined that they will happen. It's important, it matters to us that we understand this. The powers in the world today are no different than the ram and the goat of Daniel's vision. They are raised up by God, used by God to execute judgment and to effect salvation, and they are destroyed by God as well. They are no, uh, not indifferent to God, but in their rebellion are opposed to Him, and their wickedness is a rebellion against God. They hate the people of God. Because we belong to the God with whom they are at war. Now listen, if we went out into the middle of Brentwood today and we started asking people questions about this, that's not how they would answer the questions. They're not aware of the spiritual reality behind what is happening in the world. But they are nonetheless opposed to God. And as such, opposed to His people. It matters that we understand this reality of what's happening in the world. Why does it matter to us? What do we do with this truth? Well, first, knowing what is truly happening and what will happen in the end enables us to better understand what appears to be happening. That is, we, we have to interpret the world around us. Everyone does. All of us are, are receiving input, uh, whether it's through the senses or through language, things we hear, things we read and see, all of us are taking all of the information that we have around us and making an effort to put that information into some kind of narrative that makes sense. We do this in order to be able to, to with some reasonable success, anticipate what's about to happen in our world. 
And the difference between those who are trusting God, who know that God has ordained all things that come to pass, who are trusting that God has told us in His Word what is happening and what will happen, when we do this, we ought to be doing this, putting, constructing an understanding of the world around us that is informed first by God's Word. And that includes the fact that the things that are happening in our physical world are not undetached from the things that are happening in the spiritual world. These things go hand in hand. Knowing what is truly happening and what will happen in the end enables us to better understand what appears to be happening now. What else do we do with this? Why does this truth matter to us that spiritual warfare is real? It matters because we ought to remember that every opportunity and temptation to sin is not a small or private matter, but unfolds on the stage of spiritual warfare in history. Our sin serves the interests of the enemy and undermines the people of God. It undermines the kingdom of God. I'm reminded of, uh, of wartime posters from World War II uh, that said, Loose lips sink ships. Uh, if you're a history buff at all, you've probably seen these before. Uh, and so the idea being that the smallest little indiscretion can be picked up on by the enemy and used to their benefit. In warfare, there is no disadvantage too small. We give no help to the enemy. It's one more way in which we ought to understand our sin. Our sin is an offense against God. It's rebellion against God, who is our maker and our redeemer. But in the context of spiritual warfare, it is also uh, uh, an aid to the enemy. And when we face the opportunity to sin, the temptation to sin, we ought to remember this. And it's one more reason not to sin. And when we do sin, one more reason to repent as quickly as we can. To acknowledge our sin, to turn away from it. What else do we do with the, with the truth of spiritual warfare? Why does it matter to us? If the deepest reality is spiritual reality, and the powers of this world are ultimately at war with the God of heaven, then our hope is secured. Because if, if the powers of this world are ultimately at war with the God of heaven, then we know God will prevail. God is sovereign over history, raising up and tearing down. We may despair at times of ever seeing heaven. We may grieve at the hardship and suffering and loss we experience in this world. But in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, God will establish justice throughout creation in perfection and forever. Our God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. And He will prevail and we will be there to see it and rejoice in it. The fingerprints of God and His sovereignty and His power are all over the text this evening. Kind of like last week where uh, the, the boastful horn, remember the horn that's just blaspheming and boasting? And as it's blaspheming and boasting, judgment is taking place and it's torn to pieces and thrown into the fire, even as it continues to blaspheme, powerless to stop the judgment of God against it. And even this evening, you know, we've got Antiochus at the height of his power, 
rising up even against God himself. That's who the prince of princes is here in verse 25. Rising up even against God himself. But almost in a dismissive way, the text says, and he shall be broken. There's no need for God to exert himself. Antiochus is just done. This is the reality of the world in which we live and the God who rules over that world. We have the great benefit of knowing from God's word what it is that God is doing in the world and how that will come to an end. There's a a note of hope here at the end of verse 14. Daniel's a mess. Admittedly so, right? He's overcome, sick for some days, appalled by the vision and doesn't understand it. Uh, I want to put that in context for you briefly. Uh, Remember, Daniel is living in, in a period in history where the people of God are under the discipline of God. Slaves in Babylon, deported, away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. Daniel knows they're going to be restored. He knows that God has made this promise. But this vision is is of a future period where because of the sin of God's people, they are once again coming under discipline. Daniel's appalled by it. Appalled by the fact that the people are going to stray again. Appalled by what is going to be required of God in discipline in order to bring his people back. But there's this, this encouraging note at the end of 14. When the question is asked from one angel to the other, how long is this going to be? The end of the answer is, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. That's probably a historical reference to the temple having been cleansed after what Antiochus did. Uh, Antiochus did. But I can't help but, but see in it what we have so often in the Old Testament and even in the Gospels on the lips of Christ himself, that he himself is the true temple. And at the end of all things, at the end of the warfare that we experience in this world, at the end of the discipline we experience for our sin, at the end of, of all of the consequences of the fall and all of the suffering that is ours in this world, at the end of all things, the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Jesus Christ is that sanctuary. He's not only the one we worship, but the one in whom we are able to worship. The reason that we have fellowship with God. This is held out to us. This is where it all ends for us, the people of God in history. And that's an encouraging thought. Let's pray.